Hi, Pastor Adam here, and we're continuing our conversation for the month of February 2022 on family. This week, we are talking about how family suffers the consequences when it's not oriented under God. What does scripture tell us about that? What does it show us? The book of Genesis sheds a lot of light on a whole legacy of families who are not focused on their calling to be a proper family and the consequences of that, eventually culminating in the story of Joseph and how he shows us a redemption of his family, bringing them back together in solidarity. If that sounds like something you might be interested, then this is the sermon for you. I would also direct you to Pastor Josh's sermon series on family from a couple years ago. So, if you're interested in learning about family, those sermons are the ones for you, and this one as well. We are talking about family this month. Um, we're talking about what it means to have solidarity within our, within our biological families. Uh, what it means to be united as families and as and individuals within those families. We opened up our month by talking about the basis by which we can achieve that. Um, the basis by which families um, should be united, and that's with a proper head of Christ, with God in our lives. What brings family together isn't uh, this new show on Hulu, Pam and Tommy. It isn't, uh, you know, whatever other thing you want to uh, um, replace God with in your lives, you know, I talked about it last week, sporting events and all these different things that, these counterfeit things that we, we put into our lives and say that it's for family that we do these things. This, this, is a, this is an inverted view of what God would want. It's just a wrong view of what God would want. Um, it isn't shows and movies and televisions and pop culture that we rally the family behind. It's God. So that was week one, understanding the biblical framework by which we can achieve what it is that we're talking about, and that's unity within our families. And last week, of course, we talked about the tension we find ourselves in um, in this fallen world, the tension that we find ourselves in when family and our church are fighting for our allegiances. And so how do we, how do we live within that tension? How do we do right by both things? Are we leaning one way? Or are we leaning the other? Are we forsaking one in order to do right by the other? This was our discussion last week. Um, family is viewed as, as an idol nowadays, and it's, we're, we're called to put family above all else um, rather than having one inform the other and there being reciprocity in that. Is our family complementary to our faith or is it in competition with our faith? Is our faith complementary to our family or is it com in competition with it? This was week two, this was last week. We're often complicit in that process, you know, and we don't, we don't take a more active role in, in doing what we can to bring unity between the two. And we allow ourselves to be tugged one way or the other, and we allow ourselves to be stressed by this rather than actively trying to work to unify both things in our lives because both things are good and both things are blessings from God and both things are to be um, influencing the other thing. Families are silos that we're asked to retreat to rather than an integrated team that God intended. So it doesn't have to be that way. That was the ending point of last week. That's not what God would want, and that's not what we should relegate those two things to. Um, so what are we doing about that? Uh, this week I want to talk about what we see when that holistic, for, holistic framework for family 
isn't strived for, when, when God's plans and when God's commands for man aren't followed, and when we see disunity in the family, what happens, how that affects individuals and how it affects the greater whole, the consequences of, of when that happens. And there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of intense examples within scriptures, particularly within Old Testament scripture, of families that aren't focused how they should be focused, aren't unified how they should be unified, aren't working toward the mission that God had, has given family from the beginning, and we see the consequences wreak havoc on families within scripture. And so we want to take a look at that. Um, the truth is that, as I said, disharmony in the family, it's, it's kind of an age-old problem, right? And it happens first in the garden. It's an issue we see in the, in the first part of recorded human history and interaction. Adam and Eve were placed in a good and perfect world to live out God's good and perfect plan, but it didn't take long for that, uh, from that point for us to th- see things get, get marred, for us to see the intention of God be, be, be gone astray. Um, when sin entered the world through this sinful couple's rebellion, it quickly passed down through their lineages. And in the book of Genesis alone, we have countless examples of how it wreaks havoc on unity in the family. Um, we see it in Cain and Abel. We see it uh, in Sarah's grief over her infertility, uh, which moves her to give her servant Hagar to Abraham as a concubine to bear a surrogate child. This is in Genesis 16. And what happens? Sarah abuses Hagar. So there's all this toxicity within the family. And what do we see from Abraham in, the, in this whole process and this whole story play out in the book of Genesis? We see um, pass, passivity. Passivity, yeah. Um, we see him just sort of on the sidelines as this, as this thing is happening within his family. We see Lot, who's reluctant to leave a sexually perverse city of Sodom. And he has to be dragged out by angels. And then weeks later, his daughters rape him, essentially, in Genesis 19. Isaac and Rebekah, they play favorites with their twin boys, whose rivalry becomes one of the greatest in recorded history, in Genesis 25. Esau has no discernment, and he sells his birthright for some food, for a bowl of soup, in Genesis 25. And he grieves his parents by marrying a Canaanite woman, woman in the next chapter. And he nurses a 20-year hatred for his brother in trying to murder him and hunt him down. And that said brother, conniving brother Jacob, manipulates and deceives his brother out of that birthright, out of that blessing. We see Laban deceiving his nephew Jacob by somehow smuggling Leah in as Jacob's bride instead of Rachel in Genesis 29. And this results in family, a family mess. Jacob marrying his sisters and births another sibling rivalry where the sisters compete for the children. Jacob's daughter Dinah, raped by the pagan Shechem, who then wants to marry her, and Simeon and Levi respond by slaughtering an entire town of men. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, can't resist his desires and sleeps with one of his father's concubines. 
the mother of some of his brothers in Genesis 35. Jacob's other sons, and in, in the last great story of the book of Genesis, contemplate another murder of, of a brother, of Joseph, because Jacob favored him as a son, because they didn't understand Joseph's gifts, because they were jealous. And so they plan to murder him. And just shy of murdering him, they come up with a better, more profitable plan to sell him into slavery for a small bag of silver. And they lie about it to their father for years, 20-something years, about what happened to his beloved son. In one book alone, one book alone, the book of Genesis, you see the consequences of families who forsake what it means to be a family, to be unified, to show God in their families, to use what God had given to bless the rest of the world, to influence society. They don't have it right in their families. They abandon God's order and command for family and let sin consume their lives. In the case of Esau, like I said, 20 years of his life in murderous hatred for his brother. Imagine if you just took 20 years now from your life because of the same thing. It's a long time. Forsaking the unity in the family because of some sin that we let consume our lives and consume our families in one way or another. Throughout history, throughout even what we see today, we still see negative consequences of that sin slither its way into the homes of people, into families and sink its fangs into families and destroy families because there isn't a proper focus of what it means to be unified as a family and how to, how to live that out, how to do family the, cor- the correct way, how we relate, how we interact, who leads us, why do they lead us, how do they lead us, the language we use, how we love one another, what we think love is or looks like, to who, with who, what's acceptable, what's true, our devotion, or lack thereof, to unity in the family under the proper head of who God is. All of these things are damaged by that sin that entered the world and in our hearts and lives when it comes to the way in which we view and treat our family. They don't emerge, these problems don't emerge out of thin air. But when we rebel, but when we act in rebellion against our Creator and what He intended for that blessing. In the Bible, family solidarity isn't often invoked, is often invoked, sorry, is often invoked as the key to social peace, social progress. When the tribes offered themselves, to sub, offered themselves in subjugation to David when he's anointed the king, the new king of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. They appealed to him in familial terms, and they called themselves bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are your own flesh and blood, they said. But as we know, it's a mistake to think that family solidarity is as natural or as easy as a simple declaration like that. 
in a post-fall world. And we already talked about the need for proper focus and, and, and orientation um, when it comes to how we bring our family together. But even for those of us who, are, who think we're focused in the right way, focused up, if you will, focused toward God, oriented the right way, we still can say that solidarity, that unity in our families is difficult to maintain. It is because of sin. And it's demonstrated perfectly throughout the Old Testament people. These were God's own people. They had a long history of God literally entering into their lives, manifesting himself physically in ways and declaring himself to them. And even these people struggled with how to be, how to family write. And the start and finish of the book of Genesis is significant when it comes to understanding the struggle for family solidarity. And it starts with the exalted Adam, the perfect creation. Everything was good and right and as God intended. And he was given Eve and everything was given a mission. Family was set on its path, on its course by God. But Adam messed that up. And he loses that kingdom and he loses that um, blessing when he seizes what's forbidden. The one thing he was told not to go after. And the book of Genesis ends with that story of Joseph who orients the messy, sinful legacy back to where it should be when it comes to family. Back toward the sovereign, mighty God and submitting to that. And because of that, he is exalted and he ends up ruling a kingdom. Joseph does. As I mentioned, there's the first two brothers recorded in scripture. The first two in history that we have recorded. And what's recorded for us to see in their relationship because of sin. They're not pushing each other on swings. You know, they're not helping each other out in whatever sort of perfect way that looks in our minds. They're in competition to the point where one is jealous and ends up murdering his brother. That's not family unity. That's not what God intended. Adam was driven out of Eden for sin, and Cain driven even further for sin, driven away from family. And the last story in Genesis, again about brothers. There's this weird poetic thing going on. <clears throat> All of Joseph's brothers hated him, and the majority wanted to murder him, except one, except Reuben. And that, you know, Reuben looks like the, the good brother, but as we just, you know, covered very quickly, ends up sleeping with his father's concubine, like he ain't perfect. But one brother didn't want to murder him, offered an alternative solution. Let's put him in a pit. Let's put him in a pit, otherwise we're going to have to answer for the blood on our hands. So they put him in a pit. And some guys come by and they say, hey, Let's sell him instead. We can at least get some money for him. Like, we hate him so much, but let's at least get, get some money for him. So when Reuben's away, that's exactly what they do. They send their brother off because of their hatred for him. 
And the rest of that whole story hinges on that event of their brother's relationship with him, with Joseph. Brothers acting in murderous hatred, just like Cain and Abel. And between those two events, Genesis has all those different family things that we talked about. It has all those different examples of families not understanding their charge under their almighty God, who act against each other rather than work together for God. If they don't feature sibling rivalry, brother on brother, it's father against son. It's mother against father's son. It's father-in-law against son-in-law. Father against daughters. Daughters against fathers. Reading the book of Genesis is like a, it's like a soap opera. It's drama. Just family drama. The whole way through. But does our own experience really allow us to be surprised by that? Think about your own lives and your own families. Probably not perfect. Probably a soap opera somewhere in there. Right? All the temptations and all the anxieties of life that would cause a person to selfishly try to exalt themselves over others, they seem to be concentrated in the family. Siblings competing for rewards, competing for approval from their parents because their parents aren't doing right by them. Parents who view their children as nothing but burdens and hindrances on their own lives. The obliteration of the sanctity of marriage, harshness in language that puts others down in in an effort to lift ourselves up. Maybe the reason why the book of Genesis spends so much time in the soap opera like family dramas is because that's, it, speaks to, it speaks to the things a person will face in the outside life. It, it resonates. What we see in the family, well, that's, that's just an example of what's going to be out there unless we do something different, unless we offer something different, unless we be different in relationship. But if anything, the problems in a family are more intense than what we see out there. The family is like a mini world that God gives us to figure out how to be, to figure out how to be in relationship. And so, do we treat it that way? Are we, are we glossing over family and trying to go out into the world without coming from a stable place? Since Adam and Eve's fall in Eden, we struggle to realize true solidarity in the natural way that God wanted for us. As a great blessing that shapes society. But if we can master that, if we can master solidarity and unity in the family, we can be an even greater asset to the world. And one writer says, and if an entire family can master biblical godly unity and love, then they can be a city on a hill. It's a reference to Matthew chapter 5. Light to the world. The Genesis narrative of constant family disruption and drama and hatred toward one another 
started with a murderous brother, well, started with Adam and Eve, onto a murderous brother in Cain, but it ends with a restorative one in Joseph because of his faithfulness in God's providence and his heart of Christ. I'm going to read from Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Because it's just a profound level of interaction, and I like it. So you have this guy, like, if you're not familiar with the story, although you should be because I caught you up to speed now. He was sold into slavery. He was betrayed by his brothers. Like, I don't even know if we can really put ourselves in that position. I don't, I don't know what a, a, a close comparison would be, okay? But try to. He was betrayed by his brothers. He loved his brothers. They hated him. He was betrayed by them. They were going to kill him. Instead, they threw him in a pit. From then, they sold him. They sent him away. Already imagine what Joseph is thinking. It hurts your heart to think about. Genesis 45, 1 through 15. His brothers had come to him, right? Sorry. Pause again. (laughs) His brothers had come to him now. They were sent by their father, Jacob, because resources are dwindling. They're going to Egypt to, you know, request resources or figure out how they can continue on. They come, and who do they see? Their brother. Or, sorry, they don't realize it's him. Joseph realizes it's them, though. Who does Joseph see? His brothers. For the first time in, what is it, 20-some-odd years? Long time. So it says here, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And they broke down, and he wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph, of all people, standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to father and tell him. This is what your son Joseph said. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come, come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you, where your herds, with your herds and flocks and grandchildren and children and everything you own. And I will take care of you there. If there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise you, your household, and your animals will starve. And then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves And so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you've seen and bring my father here quickly. And it says, weeping with joy, he embraced his brother Benjamin. And Benjamin did the same. 
And Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. That's a guy who, he had a heart for bringing his family pure and back to God. And the redemption of this family brokenness seen throughout these first family accounts in Genesis is realized further. The breaking of the chain that we see throughout Genesis is solidified in Genesis 50, 14 through 21. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. And when Joseph received this message, it says, he broke down and wept again. Look, we are your slaves, they said to him. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you. So he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And now that dad's dead, they have, he has an opportunity maybe, that's what his brothers are thinking, to repay the evil they did to him. It's not what we see Joseph do. It's not the heart he shows. You have this long line of family discord, of disunity, a lack of solidarity, of constant sinning against each other, of gross things, quite frankly. Rape and incest, like heinous crimes against families, against each other. And then you have this guy who decides to break the chain, that chain of sin. Joseph is seen as, you know, foreshadowing of Christ, who would come and redeem all of creation, not just his own family. I think there's something like 60-plus direct comparisons with Joseph and Christ and the similarities of what he went through, what Christ went through. And through Joseph, we can see the heart he had for his family, despite their sin and evil against him. And we can see the infinitely more beautiful preview of Christ to come. But compare Joseph to what we see today. Compare Joseph to what we see today. Compare Joseph's heart for the heart that we have for family today. I say we as a, as a whole, right? <clears throat> Far from having Joseph's heart, who wept, says he wept. When's the last time you wept? <laughs> wept with joy over the opportunity to reunite his family. Far from having that heart, we're the opposite. We're unloving. We're hateful, and we hold on to bitterness. And we encourage it in others. 
and we demonstrate our rebellion against God by rebelling against our families in some facet, fashion, I think I was going to say. <laughs> you got spousal problems? Just divorce. Just abandon it. You got issues with your difficult siblings? Just get up and walk away. Don't talk to them. Forget them. You obviously don't agree. Forget them. Become estranged. Kids too difficult? Just kill them. I say it casually because it's treated casually. Abandon them. Give up on them. They're going to do what they're going to do. Right? Grandma and grandpa too old to take care of? Let them go die alone and slow in a home where it's someone else's problem. This is a kind of weird view of family we have where we pretend like it's the most important thing, but when it comes time to actually family-ing, that's the kind of heart we have. So where are we in that? Do we promote that same line of thinking, that same action in our own family relationships? Scripture calls us to a kind of love that covers all sins. But are we actually allowing sin to stifle an abundant love in our family? When conflict arises in your family, do you give up on it? Or is there hope in it? Is there hope for redemption, for unity it's easy to give up. Imagine if Joseph had his brothers slaughtered in front of him right then and there. The book of Genesis takes a whole different tone, I think. It doesn't pack the same punch of a re- story of redemption when it comes to the family. I was encouraged to throw back to Josh's sermon series a couple years ago when he spoke about family for a month. We preached and taught about crib theory, for example. Covenantal, relational, infinite, biological communities. Crib, C-R-I-B. I want to point to you a couple of his points from one of those sermons that I liked. Are we hiding our sinfulness toward our families with something like humor? through different types of jokes and comments, ideologies, discussions with people, are we actually painting a skewed picture of family from what we are called to? Do we get drawn into conversations with our friends or our coworkers or whoever you interact with on a day-to-day basis and allow them to dictate the family narrative? One that glorifies a fractured or sinful view of the blessing of family. We say things, these are his points, these are some of his points. He had many, as he does. We say things like marriage equals death. Isn't the whole phenomenon of a bachelor party like one final free night before you, whatever, like weigh yourself down? Isn't that the whole like spirit behind it? But it's not true. Marriage 
is a chance to demonstrate holiness and reflect God's nature and hierarchy in our families, a chance to reflect the image in which we're created in. We say children is the same thing, death and hardship, but they're not. Psalms 127 says that children are like arrows in a man's quiver, and the man that has many is joyful. We say, ah, siblings should fight. That's what they do. It's like, it's whatever. They should. Or they do, sorry. But they shouldn't. They should be uplifting, supportive, working as a team. We're having a discussion right now with the boys, the young boys, how to direct their energy into something productive in their relationships with each other rather than destructive Siblings should fight. It's just what they do. We say harsh language in our families. This was something that I experienced growing up. Harsh language in our families. Name calling in a family is just being funny. It's not serious. You know, don't, don't make a bigger deal about it. But that's not biblical. The tongue should be controlled. The tongue should be used to lift each other up. Not tearing someone down. Not as a joke. Do we trivialize these things in our family? Do we allow others to dictate the family narrative? Men are stupid and lazy. Men can be. It's not what they're supposed to be. Women are emotional and crazy. Women are burdened and caring, actually. Children are too young to understand, so we're not going to treat them like real people. We're going to treat them like, I don't know, whatever you call it when you talk to a kid like they're a, a bowl of mush or something. Children are too young to understand. We're not going to talk to them with real language and walk them through problems in a realistic way that sets them up for success in the future. And so we relegate children. That's not, that's not what Christ does and relegate children. He says, let them come to me too. We say, I'm not going to correct them. I don't want them to hate me. I don't want my child to hate me. But children without structure, they actually grow to resent their parents. But children with parents who allow consequences come to respect their parents. We say, I don't want to be the bad guy. We don't want to be the bad parent. Not enforcing consequences has a bad morality to it. You're the bad guy when you don't hold consequences for your children and instruct them with them. Even God disciplines those he loves. I don't tell my children what I think because I don't want them, I don't want to inform their choices. Oh, that's a popular one today. I don't tell my children what I think because I don't want to inform their choices. I want them to discover the world. But we should be bold in teaching our kids. We should be bold in teaching our kids what we know is true so that they can be set up for even greater success, so that they can be better than we were. 
Proverbs 22 says, direct your children on the right path so that they won't depart from it. Family is the starting point for how we interact with the rest of the world. It's like I said, it's like a mini world that we're given to figure out how to be right before we go out. There will inevitably be consequence for how effective we can be in life and the world around us if we're broken from where we're coming from, if we're broken in our families, if we sow discord, if we lack solidarity under the proper head, not walking in the truth of who God is, not producing godly fruit in our lives and in our families, those relationships. And on some level, we already know that simple truth. The world knows that simple truth. It's not exactly um, earth-shattering social science to know that someone coming from a broken home is probably going to have a harder time in life. Not that they can't be successful, but the cards they're dealt won't, won't help them, certainly. I wonder, are there even little sins and dysfunctions that you play out in your families? I realize I'm not talking to a bunch of people who are dealing with incest and rape and murder, like in Genesis. But sin is sin. And so in your families, is there even little things that you're allowing to exist that has, that, that, are like micro-fractures. What do they call that? Micro-fracture? Hairline fracture? What happened to your wrist? Micro-fracture? Wasn't like a full-on whatever? Something that weakens the unit, the family unit. Do you have things like that in your own life, in your own family, in the way you conduct yourself in those relationships, in the way you treat people, the role that you play? As a man, as a husband, as a father, a son, a brother, whatever role you play as a man in your family, are there ways you could be more righteous and holy toward your family in an effort to promote solidarity under God in the way you act? And likewise, women, wives, and mothers, and daughters, and sisters. What about you? Are there ways you could be? my official questions for you guys to discuss in your cell groups are these. What are you doing to redeem the sins of your own families? Think about Joseph. What are you doing to break that chain of family disunity in your own families? My parents were divorced. My grandparents were divorced. I'm not sure about my great-grandparents. It was super important to me that I broke that pattern. What are you doing to redeem the sins of your own families? Secondly, is there some way that you've been contributing to your family's discord and division be honest. And what will you do to turn from that and be better 
more righteous, more holy in your families? How can you be a better son? How can you be a better daughter? How can you be a better wife or husband or brother or sister or grandson or granddaughter or whatever role you are? How can you be better in your families? And lastly, lastly, what do you want to do to establish your family as a city on a hill?